All right. Um, let's go ahead. Uh, we're going to enter God's word. And uh, we're going to be reading first from Luke 4. And we'll read verses 16 all the way through 30. It's kind of long. Um, Luke 4, verses 16 through 30. And um, we'll talk mostly about uh, verses 16 through 20, 20-ish, but we're going to read all that. All right. Uh, hear now God's word. And he came to Nazareth, this is Jesus, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What have you heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is, accept is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the cliff on which their town was built so that they could throw him down from the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for your word. Um, for without it, we have no lamp for our feet. We have no light for our path. Holy Spirit, uh, help us now in this bit of time together to understand, to see. Uh, Spirit, help us see Jesus. Help us see him clearly, more beautifully, than we ever have, so that we would respond in true worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now, uh, you might be wondering, who is this guy <laughs> up here? <laughs> uh, we probably haven't met. Some of you maybe uh, I've met. Um, but my wife, Noemi, is, is from Houston. She's a U of H alum, and she, she knows Blake very well. Uh, back when she was a student, he was her RUF campus minister. And uh, he actually was the guy who, who married us, did our premarital counseling and all that. And uh, so whenever we come back to Houston and visit my wife's family, we usually uh, come in here 
for worship. And so it's, it's, it's a real joy to like get to be here with you because um, we love Blake and are very, very thankful for him. So getting to come here and uh, look at God's word with you is a privilege to me. And uh, so yeah, so I didn't say my name. Uh, my name is Charlie, and we live in Albuquerque, New Mexico now. And uh, I actually work for RUF now. I uh, started uh, RUF at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque about a year and a half ago. And so we're, we're toughing it out there. And it's been kind of a slow start, but it's been really good. God's at work. And uh, we love RUF. We love Blake. So happy to be here. Um, yeah. Uh, you may remember um, a few years ago there was a, a Netflix show. It got kind of big. I mean... COVID kind of did that to a lot of shows, I feel like. Um, it was called The Repair Shop. And uh, if you don't know, uh, the show centers around this, like, kind of little workshop somewhere in the UK. And there's all these, like, really specialized uh, craftsmen, craftsmen and craftswomen, and they do, like, leather repair and clockwork and glasswork and woodwork and ceramics and all that stuff. And um, so people bring in, like, these really precious family heirlooms you know, some of them have been in the family for, like, centuries, and they, they tell these emotional stories behind these things, and, like, um, they hand over their object of great value to these uh, craftsmen to be repaired and renewed. And um, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm not ashamed to admit it, my favorite people on there are these two ladies who do, they're, they're what's called, like, soft toy specialists. They repair stuffed animals. Um, <laughs> So, like, a grandmother will bring in her, like, 60-year-old teddy bear. This, this thing is, like, dilapidated. And, and she wants to get it restored so she can give it to her grandson, you know, that's about to be born. And these two ladies, like, when they receive this, you know, frazzled old bear, it's like the Queen of England is coming in to get surgery, and they're, like, you know, so serious, so delicate. Um, but what's interesting uh, about this especially with the stuffed animals, is how they start. Um, they completely take the thing apart. Like, arms and legs come off, stuffing is pulled out, like, everything's turned inside out, things are unsewn, um, ears come off. Like, we've seen dogs leave uh, stuffed toys, like, in way better shape than what these look like. And, and so what's the idea behind that, though? Because, like, if, if that grandmother was watching this, like, she would be like, oh, you know, what are you doing? Like, it would seem like if they cared a lot more, if they were being a lot, you know, more careful, delicate, they would take this really minimal approach. Like, okay, we're just going to, like, add a little stuffing here. We're going to, like, sew this hole, add a patch, put on an eyeball, whatever. Like, that seems gentler and more caring. But these ladies are experts, and they know that the problems they have to address are far more than cosmetic. Like, you can't just throw a patch on or fill in one spot with more stuffing. Every part of this bear has to be addressed from the inside out. It has to be made new. Like, in order for it to be made new, it has to be unmade first, right? We, we get this idea, you know, we kind of nod along at that idea, but like, what are millions of people planning to do tomorrow? Myself included, by the way. Like, we have these kind of like glue it together, patch it up plans for 2024. Like, if I could just get my family, my kids into the right routine, like our family would finally come together. 
you could just get that, that last bit of credit card debt knocked out. If I could just find the right devotional, I'd finally get my quiet times in order. If I could just spend a little bit less time looking at my fantasy league, I'd have a better relationship with my kids. Maybe those are all good things, don't get me wrong. But is it possible that like we, we make those promises, we come up with those solutions to avoid asking the harder, like more surgical questions, the ones you know, that sound like this, like, why do I feel like I need to buy something when I know I don't have the money to buy it? Why am I so afraid and unwilling to step up into the chaos of my family life when I get home from work? Why do I always want to retreat? Why do I not want to pray or read the Bible? It's a lot easier to avoid these questions and just kind of go for like the quick resolution, quick fix, right? Now, the, the text we read this morning, it's not really one usually associated with Christmas. And I suppose it takes place like 30 years later. Um, but it has everything to do with Christmas. It has everything to do with like the who, the what, and the why of God himself taking on flesh and becoming, being born as a human baby 2,000 years ago. And then those who heard him, their response to Jesus in this text, our response to like the whole idea of Christmas, what we make of Jesus coming onto the scene, it depends entirely on what we think our biggest problems are. Like we might think, you know, our budgets, our school, practice, homework, family dinner, choreography are like the biggest problems in our life. And if we think that, though, you know, Christmas will really only be like a brief respite, a little, little dab of happiness once a year or something like that, you know. Um, but if you understand that your biggest problems are not circumstantial, but that they're in your heart, like Christmas becomes this, this anchor if you're, uh, we, we try to get into hiking uh, in New Mexico and Colorado, and like, if you're a hiker, you know, like, on trails, rocky trails especially, like, it's kind of hard to see the path. Uh, there's these things that get set up over years called cairns, little kind of rock piles that help mark the path through what would otherwise be pretty hostile terrain. Christmas becomes a cairn. Like, the way we understand and gauge our problems has a direct effect on the way we understand Christmas and the lasting value of it. Um, the, the title in the sermon is like Christ in the Fulfillment of Scripture or something. Blake asked me for a title and I never responded, so he put that. Um, if, if, uh, if I would have been thinking on my feet when he asked, I would have said, Christmas one week later. <laughs> right? What is, where is Christmas one week later? The way we understand and engage our problems will shape how we see Christmas one week later. Right, so to use the language of Luke 4, uh, the more we realize how spiritually poor we are, how captive to sin we are, the more we see our blindness to God and his beauty and worthiness and his holiness, the more we will start to see Christmas as the beginning of the year of, Lord, of the Lord's favor. Like, that's, that's the way it is with grace. The more we realize we need it, the sweeter it is to get it. 
we're, we've kind of reached that age where like you stop getting like little things you want or didn't, you know, you start getting things you need like socks and that sort of stuff. And like, but you know you need those socks, so you're like, this is great, <laughs> right? The less we understand just how desperate we are though, like Christmas doesn't make sense. And, and it actually can become kind of offensive to us, the idea. Like look, look again here at what happens in the synagogue where Jesus is doing this reading. Like, he's just read and pointed to one of the most liberating promises of the Old Testament. And he's basically said, like, saddle up, folks. Like, this is it. This is now. We're here. But Jesus knows what's going to happen. He knows their expectations are amiss. And he knows their hearts are hard. And he knows the Jews are going to reject him. He, he mentions uh, two other prophets from Israel's history, Elijah and Elisha. Those were like, you might say, two of the all-star prophets from their day. And Jesus points to them and he says, remember these guys? Israel rejected them. And so they were sent to bring blessing and good news to Gentiles. Naaman the Syrian, the widow in Sidon, people outside of God's family. So what Jesus is saying is something of a warning and the people in the synagogue in Nazareth are absolutely furious at this. Why? Well, they were God's chosen people. They were the ones awaiting the Messiah. They had Abraham as their father. They were the ones trying to keep God's law. They were the ones who deserved it, or maybe so they thought. But if they thought in any way that they could deserve what Jesus was bringing, it shows that they like, didn't have a clue as to what kind of good news was actually being proclaimed here. Now, just to be clear, um, first century Jews in Palestine had like major problems. Okay? They, they had a lot of griefs. Um, perhaps the most obvious was their, their lack of, of freedom. Like, no autonomy as a nation. They were ruled by Rome. They, they lacked a godly king on the throne, which they had been promised. They didn't have a, a godly king to shepherd them and to fight their battles for them. They hadn't heard from God in, like, hundreds of years. They had Herod, this Roman puppet king, governing in Rome's interests. And they lived in a land that was supposed to be theirs. It was supposed to be, like, their rest and inheritance, like their their zone, and it's like not even really theirs anymore. But to them, these were their main problems. These were their biggest problems. And so their biggest problems as they saw it were like geopolitical. You know, if they were poor, it was because of the tyranny of Rome and their taxes. If they were captive, it was to a monstrous empire. If they were blind, it was because of Rome's oppression Right, their problems were circumstantial. Bad stuff had happened to them. Bad stuff from out there had happened to them. And so in their mind, a, a delivering Messiah would be someone who delivered them from all these things, right? But the fact is that Jesus didn't do that. He didn't deliver them from Roman oppression. And so the options are, A, Jesus wasn't the Messiah and 
couldn't deliver them, or two, he was the Messiah, and the deliverance he was talking about, the deliverance he was promising, was something totally different from what Israel, a lot of Israel, was expecting. So, if you're tracking here, like, because they drastically misunderstood what their biggest problems were, they were in grave danger of totally missing the good news of Jesus coming. And like, you can see what, what happens here. There's a, there's a tragic irony. These people who all would have considered themselves very religious, like they're in synagogue on, sun, on Sabbath, and they end up trying to take the one person who could actually save them, and they try to throw him off a cliff. This is how, at least for myself, this is how pride responds to grace, right? It's an absolute offense. Like, if grace is directed at you, if it's directed at me, it offends my sense of self-sufficiency. It says, I can't do it on my own. Who likes to be told they can't do it on their own? But then if, if, if grace is directed at someone else, it offends our sense of entitlement or justice, right? Jesus hits on this in, in several of his parables, like the, the parable of the prodigal son. The father's grace to the younger, like, wayward son offends the obedience of the older brother. He's like, that's, that's not right. I've been working all these years. In the parable of the, the laborers in the vineyard, the workers who worked all day are mad when the laborers who joined right at the end of the day get paid the same amount. Those people listening to Jesus here in the synagogue in Luke 4 are furious at the idea that God's grace might be extended to the Gentiles. And it's because they were blind to their own biggest problem. Right? Let's imagine something for a moment. Um, Say you're a high schooler, and it's Christmas break, so you watched a lot of Christmas movies. And, uh, of course, while watching these, you ate a bunch of popcorn and got a bunch of those, like, kernels up in your teeth, right? Happens. Um, and there's one bit of kernel you, like, you're flossing, you can't get it out. You're like, okay, well, it'll come out. Um, the days go by, you start to get, like, a toothache, which doesn't really surprise you, and you think, ah, popcorn was worth it, though. But next thing you know, two weeks have gone by, uh, you're back in school, your mouth is really throbbing, like every tooth hurts, and you're finding it really hard to focus on your history teacher's lecture. Pain is that bad. So finally you go to the dentist and you explain your, your dilemma here and this piece of popcorn kernel and everything, you're like, man, this has got to go. So he, he looks around your mouth, takes some x-rays, uh, and then... He's gone for like 20 minutes, and he comes back with his colleague, and they've got like a little table with all these surgical trays. They've got like local anesthesia set up, like little monitor things, whatever. And you're like, whoa, okay, just a popcorn kernel. Like this is, a, this is too much here. And he says, oh, hey, um, your wisdom teeth are coming in. They're impacted and infected, and they've got to go. Now, I know you, they would make an appointment and all that, but, right, you're in this scenario, like, your, your response to the help that this, you know, these doctors are bringing 
it hinges on your understanding of what you actually need in that moment, like what you think your biggest problem is. Like if it's a stuck popcorn kernel, all that surgical stuff, you're like, no, thank you. I'll, I'll try with floss again. <laughs> but if you understand the situation is like really dire, the problem is different and way worse than you thought, you're a lot more likely to welcome that level of help. The same is true for Christmas. Like, it won't really make sense. We won't really be able to receive it if we don't realize why we need it. So Christmas requires some bad news. Uh, you, you may know uh, Paul Tripp, a uh, writer, Christian writer. Uh, he wrote an Advent devotional a while back, and, and he, he summarizes the bad news this way. He says, our biggest problem in life is not familial, it's not historical, it's not societal, it's not political, it's not relational or ecclesiastical, right? The, the church or the, the type of church, it's not, not the biggest problem, right? And it's not even financial. The biggest, darkest thing that all of us have to face isn't outside us, it's inside if you had none of the above problems in your life, you would still be in grave danger. And of course, um, more recent theologian T. Swift uh, wrote recently, it's, it's me, hi, I'm the problem, or something like that. I think when she came out with that song, it was probably in like 50% of the sermons that Sunday. Um, we love that one. The reality is, though, that for each of us, the biggest danger, like the biggest problem we faced in this last year, like as you look back, and every year before and every year after that, it's the sin in your heart. It's the sin in my heart. Like we think it's stuff out there. We've got to get the right people in power. We've got to get in the right schools. We've got to get that budget right. We've got to get in the right job. We've got to get our boss to notice us. We've got to find the right sports team for our kid to be on the coach who treats him the right way. But it's not out there. It's right here. It causes us to doubt God's goodness and his good intentions toward his people. Sin tricks us into thinking, uh, have you noticed this? Like, it tricks us into thinking that, that God being supreme and us being happy and blessed, like those two things can't coexist. Sin tells us it's either one or the other. Either you're happy or God is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And so in sin, in response to that, we reject God as king and we take the throne for ourselves. And so we end up helplessly alienated from God, who is himself the source of all goodness and happiness. And apart from God, we are left spiritually bankrupt and captive to our sin as it leads us down into that spiral of continuing to not trust God, and we, we look, you know, to literally every other thing to give us life. We think money will make us no longer feel poor or empty. We think it'll make us feel secure. We think the right kind of sexual experience or expression will make us feel free and alive and whole. We think that perfect family photo is going to give us peace 
that our family's okay and that we're okay. But the reality of all these things, when we look to them for life and hope in this way, is they just leave us more deeply enslaved. Right? We, we call these things idols. Um, it's kind of a weird word. Sometimes you think of idol as like a statue thing people bowed down 2,000 years ago. But this is what Paul is talking about in Romans 1 when he says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. We look to the creation to find life and hope. But Paul says this is, this is futile. This is a worthless endeavor. It's like, uh, it's like trying to eat a Slurpee, like a giant Slurpee, with, you know, those straws that have the little, like, fake spoon thing at the bottom of the straw? Those things are worthless. You're, like, trying to, I don't know, they don't function as spoons. Um, so you, like, get a taste of the Slurpee a little bit, but just, like, enough to drive you insane knowing that there's, like, so much more deliciousness to be had but this fake spoon thing cannot deliver. C.S. Lewis, the, the other Christian writer, um, another Christian writer, he's not the other Christian writer, uh, he, he's talking about this when he looks at us like fooling about with money and drink and sex, and he's like, we're like kids settling for making mud pies in a slum when what's been offered to us in God is a vacation at the seaside. Like, this is you, this is me. And knowing this, it actually really doesn't help all that much, right? Like, a dead person can't raise himself to life. That's how the, the Bible describes people who are captive to their sin. They're dead in their sin. Like, it's bad news. It's pretty bad. But when we understand this, the idea of Christmas, like, gets way better. Why is that? Jesus, quoting the prophet Isaiah, claims he was anointed to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, liberty to those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is saying here, if you know that you are spiritually bankrupt and have nothing to bargain with, if you know you can't, like, coerce or manipulate God with your, your good deeds, if you know that, Jesus says, I came for you. Isaiah says in uh, chapter 55, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, come to the waters. Buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Let the wicked return to the Lord, for he will abundantly pardon. Jesus says, if you're captive and slave to sin, I came for you. Right? If you can't control your anger, I came for you. If you can't stop looking at porn, like I came for you. If you can't stop the jealousy rising when you're scrolling social media, I came for you. Jesus said in Mark 2, 
Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That's good news. And it's important to note here, like, it, it's not like Jesus is saying, I don't care about your physical captivity, your physical poverty or blindness, right? Like, we know that because of what Jesus' ministry looks like. You know, he's out there, he's restoring sight, he's liberating people from lifelong handicaps. But he's doing these things to show his power and authority to deal with the real problem, like our bigger problem. Scripture says that these physical maladies are the groaning and cries of a cursed creation, cursed because of man's spiritual rebellion. And so Jesus has to first and foremost deal with that. But have no doubt, like heaven is going to be filled with people dancing who were never able to walk in their life. It's going to be filled with people who could never see. The first thing they're going to see is the face of Jesus and all his splendor. Because Jesus came, died, and was raised, Paul says those who trust in him are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Like this, this is Christmas. It's the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, that God wants to rescue sinners from their sin and bring them into relationship with himself. And Jesus is the proof of this. Like he's the one who lived perfectly in your place, died in your place. He's the one who made it all happen. And so that's why, like, last week at Cornerstone, that's what it was about. Today at Cornerstone, that's what it's about. I'm assuming next Sunday at Cornerstone, that's what it's going to be about. Like, singing, reading, praying, and talking about who Jesus is, what he's done, and what he offers to you in his life, death, and resurrection. And one final thing here I want to point out, I don't want us to miss. Like, how do we know this invitation still stands? Like, this is a 2,000-year-old text. So Jesus is reading from Isaiah 61. Now, an Israelite sitting in the synagogue that day who was familiar with the scriptures would have immediately noticed something about what Jesus read. Okay, the fuller verse from Isaiah 61.2 says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Did you notice that Jesus stops short? He concludes his reading simply with, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. All right, what, what Jesus is saying here is these are two different times. The day of vengeance of God will come. Jesus talks about that throughout his ministry. But now, the age of Jesus' first coming, the age of Christmas, this is the year of the Lord's favor, the era of the Lord's favor, the time when God may still be found when God may still be sought, when he is still seeking worshipers. So seek him, for he will abundantly pardon. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that these words are true. Thank you for his life, for his death, for his resurrection and for him sending his spirit to us. Um, Holy Spirit, we ask, again, help. Um, 
plant these words in our heart that they would bear fruit and that you would be glorified in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We come now um, to a time when we don't just get to hear the word. We don't just get to hear the good news. But we actually get to come and eat of a meal that's like a 